Hello everyone, welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're here with episode 95. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And it's Leanne's turn to have a break this week. Am I ever going to get a break? Well, I'm going to have to teach one of you two to... Uh, to record and edit the no, podcast. You're not. When you take breaks, there's no podcast. <laughs> but um, well, Leanne, hopefully we'll be back with us next week. But uh, we've got a great episode coming up. We've uh, finally having a, a longer interview with Dr. Red Ruby Scarlet. She's been on the podcast before uh, in a couple of shorter sections, but we have a really big in-depth chat about um, social justice issues in early childhood services. So uh, definitely worth sticking around for that. But we've got a few things to cover uh, just before then. Uh, we want to start with, well, Lisa, we might start with you. you You've had another great article published in the Fairfax Papers. One of wonderful headlines: "Stop treating kids as cash cows." I kind of just want to stop I there. No, they Isn't finally got a good headline. Amazing heading. Do you want to tell I us a bit about that? Well, look, you never get to choose your headings, but I was very pleased because Fairfax actually rang me and said we need an article about um, uh, the. Um, New South Wales Liberal government's promise to spend bucket loads of cash on um, out-of-school hours care if they get elected. Is this as good as it seems? And, of course, once I started digging into it, no, it wasn't as good as it seems. So I put that in the in the article, and if you want to read it, I'm sure Lem, can you put a link to it online? Absolutely. Really recommend it. Um, it's, it's great for a couple of reasons. One is sort of we're at that. We're in that real big cycle of political discussions at stories and promises and all those kind of things. We've got the New South Wales election, the federal elections coming up. But Lisa's article is fantastic because it really there's a lot of detail, and there's a lot of numbers in the test stuff she's talking around. But Lisa has this great skill and ability to make it readable, um, and oh, I understood it, which you. is you know which means it, that anyone can. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not even from New South Wales. I just stand here in the ACT over the border, shaking shaking my head. Are you crazy New South Wales? I know. It's pretty bad up here, isn't it? <laughs> um, so we're going to then move from the level of article to book. Um, not to, yeah, not to try and trump. Some people just have yeah. to show other people up, don't yeah, exactly, they? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So uh, Leanne uh, has had a wonderful book uh, published. Uh, it's available on the, the Amazon Australia store. I've, it's literally sitting on my uh, my Kindle uh, app on my, on my iPad. Uh, it's called Challenging the Intersection of Policy with Pedagogy. It's part of a really interesting series looking at um, those kind of issues in early education. Um, I'm about two sections into it. It's, it's fantastic. It's, a, it's, it's a, 242 pages. I know it's going. I'll, I'll have it done in a couple of days. But it's the, but they, it's it structures. Leanne is the editor, um, along with a colleague of hers from the UK, I think. Uh, who but they, they, they there's a whole bunch a series of um, research and articles and, and discussions um, that have been edited and sifted together in a few different topics. I'm I'm doing a really bad summary of it, but um, I promise it's really really good. I'm I've, um, I've like I said I'm about halfway through. Uh, really worth it. it Available uh, in in hard in sort of uh, in what's the, the the dead tree version available as an actual book, but it is quite expensive. I think that's just how research books work. But the like I said, the Kindle version is actually is really affordable, and I really recommend um, grabbing it. There's also Leanne uh, does some summaries of the different sections all the way through. But um, just another reminder that um, a Leanne is a very important uh, person who who still unlike you and I, unlike well, well, yes, that's where I would normally go with that, Lisa. But as as mm-hmm. I post on Twitter the other day, let's just remember that this podcast is now hosted by two published and celebrated authors and me. So... You know. Come on, you've got you're very published. You wrote this most brilliant article last week about um, the role of men in the early education and care sector that got me out of having so many difficult conversations <laughs> online for weeks and weeks. I could just say, "Please read Liam's article. Here's a link." I know, but who so, doesn't have a blog these days? Like, so it's about having a having a physical book in your hand. I also wanted to just highlight, um, we had uh, a listener of the show uh, sent me this on Twitter, so I want to say a big thanks to her. Um, the uh, the government's currently conducting an inquiry into the status of the teaching profession. Um, now, they didn't name the early education sector in the sort of uh, explanatory documents around that, but people have wonderfully um, taken what I would call a pretty activist stance and have included the early education sector in that. Um, and there are public hearings being held across the country. The one in Adelaide was held last week, um, and two listeners of the show actually appeared before the committee and did an incredible job. So um, I want to thanks. I want to say I want to say a big thanks to uh, Emma Murphy, who was the one who reached out to me on Twitter. Thanks, Emma, who sent me the the Hansard 
um, uh, what do you call it, the Hansard document, which which outlined their, their testimony before the committee. So Emma Murphy is studying her Master of Teaching in Early Childhood, and uh, Dr. Jesse uh, Jovanovic, sorry if I've got that surname, uh, pronounced that incorrectly, um, but um, Dr. Jovanovic is the Program Coordinator for Early Childhood Education and the Senior Lecturer in Early Childhood Studies, and they're both from Flinders University, and they did. I've just had a really quick look through the transcript. Um, literally, uh, Emma sent me this on Twitter half an hour before we started recording, so I'm sorry I, can't, I couldn't read the whole thing, Emma, but um, what, incredibly, within uh, the first two pages, there was just some really incredible advocacy for early education. I wanted to read just a quick paragraph from, from Emma's testimony here. Um, Evidence overwhelmingly shows that investment in children's early education is just that, an investment. Evidence also makes clear that having trained teachers in long daycare environments increases the quality of the interactions that other educators have with children. This evidence is clear, so why aren't we training, respecting and paying teachers appropriately? Thank you. I do love a little polite yes. thank you at the end, but Emma, you know, podcast round of applause. That's you know really incredible, amazing advocacy from uh, from 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 her and her colleague from Flinders University. It is well worth reading the entire statement, which will include a link in the show notes. But um, really, really well done. Yeah, for sure. I love it when students start being activists when they're students. Exactly. That's when the government really likes to yell at them. They should be back in. That's what, that's what, they should be back in their studies. But no, I'm glad they took the time out to go and appear before this committee. Um, Although I suspect Emma's doing a master's, so yeah, like she may not be a baby student. She's... Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> I think. Look, I, look. I'm just impressed that these two very highly credentialed people are listening to the show. So um, I hope that they're, I hope they're not using any of this nonsense in their uh, in any of their research or or papers they're writing. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great to get the podcast referred to as in some some formal thesis or something? That'd be good. Yeah, we may have to. Someone could do that. That would be that would make us all very happy. Um, someone could do a thesis on the podcast and the banter. On the banter, that would be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? All right, the challenge is out there, people. If you do that, let us know. Um, let's do a really quick. We, we've actually we introduced this new segment at the start of the year, but our episodes have been so packed with interviews in the last little while we've had to cut this section. But I'm going to bring it back because I, I really love this one. Now, Lisa, amazingly, before I list the quote, I just I, I want to let you know we've got a fantastic new ally in the early ad, early childhood advocacy oh, no. battle. And look, uh, I, I think and you she's may be... got nice clothes and nice shoes and a really horrible father. Yes, and she's but she is saying some very interesting things about the uh, the childcare sector, as they would call it in the United States. This person is uh, an American, um, and I think look, it sounds to me what she's trying to do is kind of make America's childcare system great again. I don't know if it was ever. Um, great before, but uh, the, no. <laughs> quote, the quote we have from this uh, this this uh, ally and advocate is: "You have care providers who are working at below poverty wages. You have parents who can't afford the care, and you don't have a robust ecosystem of facilities because it's a low bar, a low margin business with high liability. So it's like just a fundamentally flawed system. It, I think it's both, like just really bad, it isn't is, it? But Lisa, I think we probably both agree that's not a bad summary of the the the, the issues there, and it probably kind of applies." to australia as well <laughs> so we're, we're very and you don't expect who to have said it no so we're, we're very happy you know, on behalf of the podcast i'd like to throw our full support behind ivanka trump uh who that quote came and from i never thought i'd hear those words on this podcast but <laughs> no we are fully through it so fascinating then look I'll, I'll include a link to the news article we won't spend too much time going into it but um donald trump's administration has just unveiled its third budget proposal and it includes uh, one billion dollars uh, towards childcare, which kind of uh, really quickly sounds like a lot but the united states is god knows how many times bigger than australia so one billion dollars is actually not that much i think I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, Lisa, but Australia's childcare subsidy system itself is a couple of billion a year, isn't it? Um, sorry, what was that? <laughs> so I think Australia's uh, the, the money the government, the Australian government spends on just say the childcare subsidy is actually uh, eight million. Eight million. Eight, eight billion. Eight billion. Eight billion. <laughs> it is eight, eight billion. billion a year. So yeah. one one billion for the entire country is actually very very tiny. But you know what? It's it's it, it's, it's, funny, it's money isn't it? because when I read that one billion, I thought, wow, that's so much money. But of course, we spend eight billion a year. Yes, and so it shows that we maybe don't get best use of that. Maybe not. Well, you know, Ivanka Trump is available for consulting on the on Australia's LHR. So you know, I'll definitely be reaching out. Maybe we'd interview her for the podcast. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm sure she'd agree to come I, on. She would love to. All right, well, leave that with me. I'll be reaching out to uh, to, to Trump Tower and seeing if we can set up that interview. But um, we we will cut now instead to an interview with uh, someone I think we can say is probably slightly uh, more in tune with Australia's early education system than Ivanka Trump, which is uh, Dr. Red Ruby Scarlet. I doubt she's ever been in a segue between Ivanka Trump and herself, but it has now happened on the early education show, so where we're ticking off a lot of firsts here. But um, we'll be back just after the break with our interview, talking social justice in early childhood with Dr. Red Ruby Scarlet. So stay with us. All right, welcome back, everyone. So we're very excited to have our special guest for the week this week, um, talking all things social justice and early childhood, Dr. Red Ruby Scarlet. Red, welcome back, I should say, to the early education show. Thank you, Liam. Very nice to be back. Yeah, well, great to have you back. Now, I think we were talking just before we hit record saying we think the overlap of people who listen to this podcast and don't know who you are is very, very small. But do you want to introduce yourself to, you know, the the two people out there who have never heard of you? (laughs) Well, I'm Dr. Red Ruby Scarlett. I'm an early childhood teacher. I am also an early childhood researcher. I'm an activist and most of my activist work happens through the social justice in early childhood group, but I also have an early childhood consultancy called Multiverse, which it actually has its own activist spin as well. But yeah, I guess I'm I, I'm uh, an activist, an educator and an artist. So you've got just, just a few things on. What did I miss? <laughs> I'm sure there's something, but um, we should probably say Lisa and I um, and Leanne as well. who couldn't make it tonight, unfortunately, but um, have known you for for quite a while. Lisa, do you remember when you first? How long have you known Red, and where did you first? I, look, actually, why don't you answer that question? Because I'm just searching <laughs> through old e- emails to kind of oh, see. Oh no! <laughs> I've got to try and remember the. I, I reckon it was 2009, so it was my first centre director role here in Canberra at um, good old SDN Bluebell. Um, I think it was at that stage where I thought I knew everything about the early childhood sector, whereas I do now, but I did, but I, I didn't back then. <laughs> but I vividly remember. Um, so uh, Red uh, was working in um, working in a role which was coming in supporting services with a whole range of practice. But I vividly remember you came into the preschool, no, the toddler room, I think, while I was in there, and I had to speak to one of the educators about um, allowing a child to climb up onto the, the couch and, and slide down the back of the couch. And what, you know, back in my, my old days, I was a bit worried about health, occupational health and safety at the time. And you helped me out, Red, by by sat by parroting my words and saying, yes, yes, that's totally not okay, but doing the exact same thing yourself at the same time. So you climbed on the back of the couch and slid down the back <laughs> while articulating to the child that why this was not okay. So that was very helpful. I- I'm into role modelling, Liam, and I'm surprised I didn't say, have you got a thrower with your car? (laughs) (laughs) Role modelling, very important teaching strategy, which I have since learnt. So thank you for that. (laughs) My pleasure. How's your email search going, Lisa? uh, It went fairly well. Um, I sent you an email in 2005 about the critical curriculum community, in which I said, unfortunately, I cannot translate into layperson's terms what the group is doing, attempting to do from the information I have available. Is it possible for you to forward me two or three dot point sentences about what the group is? And did I spell those correctly? I think you probably sent me back oh, a paragraph or two. <laughs> no, but I actually remember what happened. We were at some meeting and you and Anthony Saman were turning, were sitting behind me and I just joined the sector at that stage and I must have said something because you both tapped me on the back simultaneously. And, and said, we said, need oh, my be... God, your outfit is fabulous. <laughs> no, you didn't, actually. You didn't even comment <laughs> on my outfit. You said <laughs> you need to be part of the social justice in early education group. Mm. Well, you are an amazing activist, Lisa, and you've been an incredible <laughs> dot point voice for those of us who, who cannot do a dot point without writing a whole essay. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I think we – so in terms of the discussion we wanted to have tonight, I think, Red, where most people may be familiar with you is through your work um, in the social justice field, and particularly the social justice in, in early education uh, Facebook page. And I've got to say, you know, you personally in that group have, you know, been uh, hugely helpful through, 
for me throughout my career and really uh, getting me to think about topics that I probably would never have otherwise even thought about. But um, we can't believe it's now episode 95 I think we're up to and we haven't had this discussion on the podcast we were really fortunate to come to the social justice and early childhood conference last year and do a live show where we talked about what we thought was the biggest social justice issue facing the sector at the time but we we thought this would be a really good point in time to actually get you on and talk a bit more broadly about um, social justice and the sector and the complexities but I think we have to start with a really big question well I, I would find this tricky to answer I'm, I'm sure you've got mm. a very good answer but um, how do we when we say social justice what do we mean how would we define that term it's funny because social justice like the term reflection or journey sort of adopts a a low fat understanding because once we hear it it sort of rolls off the tongue but social justice I guess it's a big concept that is all about movement. So it's movement literally in terms of political movements. It's movement in terms of trying to wiggle with people's thinking about what's fair and what's not fair, what's inclusive, what's not inclusive, what's exclusive, what excludes. And I guess thinking about how we translate those very, very big ideas into everyday practice. Because I think in early childhood, it's easy to feel overwhelmed, I suppose. Social justice was for a long time quite scary. I'm I'm thrilled to say that there's so many people interested in social justice and working with social justice. So that relationship between the big idea and the everyday practice is beginning to come together. So, you know, when you ask what's the concept or what's the approach, those two things kind of go hand in hand. And I guess I think about them in three layers. There's the concept there's the context and there's the content. And that includes things like theory, the big ideas that help us think and challenge us. It includes the regulatory landscape that shapes what's fair and not fair because there are some legal things that are really fair and really help us, but there there is legislation that is still quite discriminatory in this country. And then there's the National Quality Framework, which drops out of the legislative uh, landscape, if you like, and then it's how we enact that in practice and how we embody this idea, this concept of social justice. How'd I do? <laughs> I'm still a bit confused. Why is it important that, she says it with a, a straight face, why is it important that social justice is even considered by the early education care sector? Social justice, I guess that particular phrase is something that people haven't associated. So there's, there's, I guess there's a necessity to reiterate why that's important. I guess it, it's not actually outside any of the normal things. So social justice and documentation, social justice and reflective practice, social justice and relationships, social justice and children learning literacy and numeracy and STEM and arts, etc. So it's important because... If we're talking about education as something that raises children and that educates them and that is going to make the country a, a, a wonderful, magnificent country and a smart country, social justice isn't separate from any other part of learning. That's why it's important to early childhood education. But, Red, would most people understand that like what like you know here I am I'm an educator or I'm a teacher I've just gotten my degree or my qualification I'm coming in I'm thinking a lot more about things like you know um, stages of development I'm thinking about you know helping children's literacy what's that got to do with social justice Good question, and that prompts me to just take a sideline before I give you my dot point, Lisa B, <laughs> to say that there's what ha- we've got a repertoire of language around what makes a society, and that language is social justice, inclusion, equity, equality, and they kind of all get lumped in together. But social justice, I guess, it's that bigger picture and relating what that bigger picture looks like to that very moment with that very child. For example, if I'm talking about social justice and literacy, every single child that is in my classroom or that I'm you know, part of developing their curriculum or I'm involved with pedagogically, I want every single child to have the literacy that they need to be able to participate in society in the most successful ways. Now, the tricky part about that is that 
many children in Australia, I think we must be up to 20-something percent who are multilingual, that English isn't their first language, but mostly we're educating in English. We need children to be able to have the language of power. We need children to have uh, excellent literacy skills in the language of power, which is English, in order to be able to participate in society. And that's a matter of social justice, just as one example. I think one of the things for me is when we when we think about the work in the early education sector, um, we really want to be thinking that, you know, the, the foundational suite of documents we work with is the national quality framework. Now, it's not to say we can't explore things that are beyond that, but, you know, Red, it will be, are there links with social justice within the, the framework itself? There are a million links with the social justice in the framework. It's just that that particular phrase, it kind of twinkles its way through it. But because it's lumped in with all of the other language inclusion, diversity, difference, etc., I think it's hard for people to understand. So looking at social justice as a way of doing and looking at social look looking at what is the social justice question in how I set up this environment? What is the social justice question in how I'm engaging with this child in this particular moment? What is the social justice question in terms of, you know, how I arrange my staffing? What is the social justice question in terms of the way I connect with community? So all of those things I think are integral and probably maybe implicitly on the minds of people. And what I guess the work of the social justice group is to make those explicit. There's there's a fallacy that I guess because we talk about social justice as a big picture issue that we think it's just about social issues. I guess the work of the social justice group is to bring together those big picture issues and their relationship with everyday pedagogy. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it is really weaved throughout all those documents. I think you can particularly read it in the early years learning framework, and I know you actually had a hand in ensuring that's the case. Do, I'm actually fascinated. Do you think uh, it kind of makes me wonder why those words weren't specifically included, whether there was a fear about the, the negative connotations of them. And I wonder, like, if, if you know, we're in a parallel universe where the NQF was, was only starting now, where maybe it was rolling out, you know, it was being developed in, you know, 2020 rather than 2010, do you think they would just call it social justice now? Do you think we've moved on a bit, even just in the last sort of seven or eight years? No. <laughs> I was just saying, no, not so much. Sorry, just before you, before I enthrall you with my response to that, can I just say that for everybody listening, the parts of the EYLF that you love, I wrote them. (laughs) (laughs) The parts that you really don't like, I had absolutely nothing to do with it. Um, But, yes, (laughs) I think that the, the intent for social justice, so when we were sitting in the consortium and talking about it, Every single person of those 36 people, every one of them was committed to social justice. They'd had long, long, like Anne Kennedy, for example, long histories in activism, long histories in making children's lives better and amazing so that it wasn't just about, you know, people could go to work because there was childcare, but no, this is about education. So I guess I, I sit in a long line of people who've done this work before me. Social justice may or may not have been this specific term that was used, but the intention is absolutely there. Using the term social justice can feel frightening for people. And, you know, I think back to the old days when we, the old days when we used to have our social justice meetings and talk about the issues that we wanted to raise, the the, the parts of the community that we wanted to highlight because they were marginalised. And they're not marginalised because there's something wrong with them. They're marginalised because of the way that society is structured, essentially. So I guess social justice is dealing with the structures that make give the illusion that there is something wrong with people that they need to be included. We're trying to extrovert that to say, rather than bringing people to include them into something that changes them or or makes them have to fit a certain mould, that we extrovert that and that social justice enables all of those diversities and differences to exist and to thrive. So what does that look like in practical terms? That's where we have the beautiful complexity about children's language. That's where we have the beautiful complexity about who is a family. That's where we have the beautiful complexity about here are our resources, but here are our inclusion resources. Why are those two things separate and different? So social justice, the concept helps us understand or question those why we have, you know, the norm and then everything else, I suppose. So I think that if we were to write, sorry, if we were to, if we were to write, it's a very long dot point, Lisa B. If we were to write the, if we were to, if we were to write the EYLF now, I'd do it in dot points, but I would also 
say that the, the term social justice is becoming more familiar. People are attaching to it. And partly it happens very often in conservative... Well, when we have a conservative government, you see people attaching very neatly to social justice because they start seeing all the injustices that are going on. And so, therefore, if that could be translated really clearly and really explicitly with practice examples into early childhood curriculum, I think it could end up in the next uh, National Early Years Learning Framework or curriculum or whatever we have. Can I just ask a question? We often see in online groups um, people say, oh, everything's so PC in early childhood now or everything's so politically correct is what's the difference between social justice and politically correct? Is social justice just another word for left-wing kind of politics? Look, that's that's generally it's stereotype. So like there are stereotypes of different cultures and different ways of being, the stereotype around social justice is that it's politically correct. But if we if we had have done this podcast around let's unpack what the concept of political correctness is political correctness i guess is a it's a it's a strategy to maintain the status quo and it's a strategy not to have to see the way that people are marginalized because of the way society is structured mm-hmm. fair so, enough so we need to schedule an episode on what is political correctness that's all right we can we can definitely do that um i'm here to help <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh so if we think like, this is something I'm particularly guilty of, I think when we when we think of these uh, this particular topic, I think we I, I want to sort of leap to discussing and getting into the challenges and, and why people maybe find it difficult. But I think it's maybe worth acknowledging that you know this, this, the the sector has a broad and deep history, and there are social justice issues and topics that I know the sector has actually successfully engaged with, and we've actually you know gone on a journey and do some things really well. You know, could you is, is there something you'd point to there? Red, where you think the sector's kind of actually actually done a really great job on a particular issue or, or an approach in social justice? I think the commitment to embedding Aboriginal perspectives is absolutely booming. And I think back to day, you know, years ago, and auntie, I call her auntie Dr. Sue Atkinson, who was the first Aboriginal early childhood teacher to have a PhD. We did our PhDs together. And I think back to the times when those things weren't so palatable and looking at the political landscape and looking at what the content of curriculum, what was privileged as, as worthy knowledge and what was marginalised as, as, as worthy knowledge. And I guess, you know, if we think about that, you know, extroverting inclusion as opposed to bringing everything into it, then that's something that I've seen grow enormously over 25 years I think that there are still there we have a lot of work to do around gender we have a lot of work to do around sexuality I think poor old bilingualism gets pushed to the back because it's I guess it's more acceptable and we're a growing bilingual or multilingual community yet you will still hear bilingual educators for example talk about how they struggle in their workplace because they might be the qualified teacher and they might be bilingual but they still experience forms of discrimination so the nuances that attach to each of those different pieces of diversity and difference, I guess, would would impact in different kinds of ways. So can I say we've done a really good job overall? I think the fact that the community is growing is a great sign. The things, this, here's a little story, and this is from a, a few years ago, Thing moments that I really value and cherish um, are things like this. I'll have... I had a, an early childhood teacher who said, you're marching in Mardi Gras. I'm scared to march in Mardi Gras. Um, I'm not quite sure. I, I want to support this, but I don't know how, etc." And so we then had this conversation about what internalised homophobia looks and feels like because essentially the fear that's attached to being associated with the uh, LGBTIQA plus community is essentially internalised homophobia. And so that gorgeous person came in March and had the time of their life, obviously, and it, it, it almost turned around that sensibility of what it means to be involved in a community and to be an ally to a community that's marginalised because of the way society is structured. And that was a beautiful outcome because 
you can see that if somebody's had this experience of turning something around within themselves, that's a story that they're going to tell other people. And early childhood people are all about the story. We're all about the narrative. We're all about how if you've had that experience and I might like it, I might have it too. So I think that those kinds of things are happening on the ground. Social justice work sort of happens in big, big, big picture policy and that very local relational phase. So I guess, yeah, think if, if I think about how that work has happened, then I can say, yes, we've definitely seen change. Sorry, just one more thing. In um, the anti-bias approach in early childhood, first edited by Barb Creaser and second edition Elizabeth Dow, when Elizabeth put in the chapter about families talking explicitly about lesbian gay families, she wrote in the front that this could be risky. She wrote in the front that this was something that was, you know, that, that people may respond to in ways that, you know, they wouldn't respond to other early childhood knowledge or texts or experiences. And that screened something that in 2001, we, that that was a radical move. So we're now in 2019, that radical move then we're still working on, we're still having to chip away to say this is something of interest, this is something of importance and it's not separate from your everyday pedagogies. It's not a poster on the wall, it's not a book on the shelf, it's something that needs to be embedded and, and twingled into everyday practice. You're listening to The Early Education Show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Find out more about this episode and all of the previous episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. So, Reb, some issues are harder for the sector to engage in, some social uh, justice issues. What ones do you think are they and what's hard about it? Yeah, well, I guess if if I may reframe the question and say, are the issues hard or is it that people find them difficult because they, they're not seen as palatable or they're not seen as acceptable or they're not seen as something that, you know, has anything to do with curriculum? And I think, you know, disability as a, you know, inverted commas, as an area has a lot of attention and it has a lot of support because I think people feel like if they get a couple of strategies about how to include a child with a disability that they can do that. In saying that, I think you can't stereotype a person who has a disability that that's all they are or that's who they are. So I think there are a few misnomers about the things that we think we can do and the things that we can actually do. So the ones that don't seem to trigger people like Aboriginality 20 years ago was not something that was popular in early childhood curriculum. And, you know, today we're, we're recording at Play School and Arnie Tracy Lynn Bostock's beautiful acknowledgement of country that she started and is now a worldwide phenomenon, specifically in Australia, but people worldwide have seen her acknowledgement of country and use her acknowledgement of country. That was wild and radical at the time. So, that's now a little bit more palatable. People are now moving on that, which they should, because it's all about where we are. Um, but I think there are other things like gender and sexuality that seem to be, they appear to be less palatable because people don't understand them. And, and when I say people, I'm saying the majority of early childhood people are heterosexual people or cisgendered people. And therefore, to understand gender and sexuality in a different kind of way, it makes you ask questions about who you are and what your gender is and how you experience it. And therefore, to, to address that in curriculum, people aren't sure. Some issues like bilingualism, like cultural diversity, all those things, people feel like they can include them, they can deal with those social justice issues within their curriculum. Gender and sexuality, I think, on one level, I shouldn't combine them actually because I think there's a part of gender equity that people do really well and they're really tuned into. I think the queerness of gender and sexuality are parts that people may have a desire to want to figure out how to do and do successfully but they're not quite sure. And, and sometimes 
you know, if you're in a whole community where you don't know anybody who's queer, you don't have that as part of your team or part of the families or whatever, if you put your hand up, there's so much stigma attached to those communities that it might feel like a risk. But isn't it primarily like the often repeated comment I see online at least is what has this got to do with young children? Mm. And my immediate response would be, well, that's who children are. Every child has a gender. Every child has a sexuality. Even if you're, even if you're asexual, that's in, that's in the acronym. It's, it's made it to the top. So I think that, that it's a perfect example, Lisa, actually, of that relationship between what is the big picture question and what does the practical everyday experience look like because you can't just put that child through a developmental curriculum because if you don't feel good about yourself, you won't learn. If you know that your family is being discriminated against, you won't learn you, or you can't learn or it inhibits your learning. And those big messages, believe it or not, twinkle down to children. And there's lots of research that shows, you know, children as young as three. I, I gave this um, a keynote in uh, Geelong a while ago and I had a, a transcript of three-year-old boys talking about girls and I didn't tell the audience that they were three-year-old boys and there was no differentiation about whether that was three-year-old boys or whether it was, you know, a bunch of blokes in a pub. And when people, when I revealed the context... You're scaring me here. When I revealed the story, the fact that boys at three could talk about a girl in that kind of way says gender has everything to do with how they learn and has everything to do with what, especially in play-based curriculums. At the same time, there are stories about children being activists and standing up in the face of injustice and resisting those things and some great stories about girls doing that. So it, it's not like there's a, it's not like there aren't those little resistance stories, but generally speaking, there are stories around children learning language of discrimination at a very, very early age. And that's why, that's why I think, does it have anything to do with children? Absolutely it does. Because even the side comments, even the little giggles, even the things that we do un- unconsciously are still producing this discourse with children where they learn to discriminate or marginalise based on gender or race or class or disability or sexuality or whatever. That would make a great party game. It's like, is this transcript from a group of three-year-old boys or the Liberal National Party Room? Yeah. That would be a great game to play. Here's ScoMo and Potato Head. (laughs) Um, I think that's great. Look, we should say, I think this this interview uh, for for this episode sort of sprung from uh, you you did a great interview with me as well. I feel like I'm always interviewing you, Red, for various things. Liam! (laughs) For for the framework where we talked about um, Mardi Gras and particularly, you know, the social justice and early childhood group's connection with that. Um, that 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 event uh, and the the history of advocacy for these issues um, and, and and it's interesting I, I sort of in, in talking about talking with you about it offline I sort of see you know I, I'm always kind of surprised that there's this kind of moral panic that even I think it, it finds itself in weird ways in the sector when we'll, we'll sort of tackle these these other issues but this one. Even people I would normally describe as progressive and and in a whole range of other issues will sort of not say the words that Lisa's just said, but words to that effect, which is, you know, why do we have to involve children in this? And I've, Mm. and, and, what it seems to me is that people are confusing these discussions about about gender and, and diverse families with, um, well, look, with <laughs> uh, I don't know how else to bluntly to put it, but people seem to completely conflate, you know, that with you know uh, the actual sex <laughs> of the, uh, the the idea that uh, men having sex with men and women having sex with women, and in a whole range of other things that we seem to just we we see it cannot seem to unentangle those things whereas we don't have when we if you think about you know reading a story that involves a mum and a dad people don't immediately go well we can't read that story because we're implying that you know that these two people have you know at some stage um you know had sex is that that that's always been a confusing part to me it's like why can't we disint I, I don't know why we can't talk about the lived experiences of children who have diverse families uh without but we is that what and you, who have all been born as the yes. basis of it's happened at some having, point people well yeah maybe that's not always the case anymore but a fair few of them would have been born from that mm. 
I mean, you've hit the nail on the head and that's why there is so much moral panic. And there's there's a beautiful article I'll give you a link to. Um, Afrika Taylor has written written about this and she wrote about the, the play school episode that happened in 2006 uh, where Vicky Harding and her partner, Jackie, and her daughter, Brenna, you know, they did it through the windows, which was, you know, two mums. And we were, I was at... Um, Marrickville Council, which is now known as Inner West Council at the time, and we were doing a lot of work around this. And we we were, you know, there was a huge media blitz. We were called the Gay Care Centre, all of this huge drama around it. And it was, it, it was a total, I guess, hijack of what it means to say every human matters, every human has rights that should be respected, not just children's rights, but every human right, every every human's rights, which includes our beautiful families that, you know, attend our centres. And, you know, we, we look back on that time and time again and think, how do we undo, that was 13 years ago, how do we undo that very nexus that you've illustrated there? Because it seems a little bit weird or it seems a little bit strange. And it's 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 partly that people need to ask those questions of themselves and it's partly about people being brave and standing up and saying, you know, you would never question a Chinese New Year. You would never question a Christmas. You would never question any of those other experiences or cultures or cultural celebrations that people have. In fact, actually, lots of people question them, so I'm completely contradicting myself. <laughs> I was but, going to say, I'd be questioning yeah. some of Lisa those. B. But, but they are, they're things that happen, you know, ad nauseum. Mardi Gras doesn't happen ad nauseum. And, look, I, I, I'm not suggesting that everybody suddenly go berserk and do Mardi Gras in their centres. I think... Mardi Gras is a really important cultural festival and it's not a sex festival, it's a, it's a cultural festival. You know, diverse genders, diverse sexualities are about cultural identities. That's the piece that we've got to try to get through really clearly. It's about culture and it's about, it's not lifestyle, but it's culture and it's about who people are and how they live. So if we, if we move away from Mardi Gras I mean, Mardi Gras is a great launch pad because, as I said, the social justice group has had these beautiful experiences and gorgeous transformations because people have participated and become part of the community. But I think thinking more, I I guess, pedagogically into do I have the bookshelf that is the heteronorm and then one or two books about two mums or do I have a really diverse book shelf that has really good literature that's got lots of representation of you know at least 10 percent of the australian community and as we know 62 percent of people which is more than most elections voted yes for marriage equality so if 62 percent of people allies and queer folk voted for that and there are at least 10 percent of um people in australia and that includes children then surely that requires us to start thinking how are we looking at these these diverse ways of being gendered these diverse sexualities in our everyday practice so i you know i i guess thinking about if we could undo it as a hot topic if we could take away the word controversial when we talk about gender and sexuality i'd be very thrilled and i guess it's just it's supporting people to I, I struggle saying this word, but it's supporting people to normalise what it means to be different in terms of gender or sexuality and build that into curriculum in the same way that they build in other forms of difference that they feel comfortable with. So the do launch you really I su- think that people are more comfortable with, you know, disability, etc. Like you've been arguing that, but... I suspect if we look at bookcases, for example, there'll be one or two examples of <clears throat> children in wheelchairs and that'll be it for disabilities. That I agree with, but I do think the comfort level is stronger with disability or language or ethnicity. I think the comfort level around Indi- Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues is growing, but I think the gender and sexuality stuff is is trailing and it it reflects the research that um, Professor Kerry Robinson 
did looking at the hierarchy you know i mean you can't you can't say that somebody might not be disabled and aboriginal or you know gay and Thai or whatever but you know they did research looking at those categories critiqued the the you know the what do you call it they critiqued that they were just looking at those in isolation but gender and sexuality were very very the lowest on the list so yes the bookshelf would have one the odd disability book the odd bilingual book the odd person of color book etc and I think that, you know, we've got a big job to do. If we're talking about social justice, social justice more broadly, we've got a huge job ahead of us. But I do think that gender and sexuality probably cause the most panic because of the things that we've talked about and its relationship to people considering it as weird or considering it as sex. And it's not... We're talking about people's lives here. I think yeah, that's the other, sure. the, the other thing I'd note there is we have this... Um, it's interesting. I think in this um, in the early childhood sector, we can sometimes have too narrow a focus on the experience of children, which is really important. But we also need to remember, which is what you've been saying, you know, for the last little while, Red, which is, you know, these are these are the families of children that will be, uh, you know, identifying in a whole range of different ways. But educators coming into the sector as well are going to be, um, you know, not everyone's coming in is going to be, you know, a straight uh, white person. It, we we also need to think about just how welcoming our spaces are. This isn't about um, exactly as you said, you know, throwing a you know mini Mardi Gras in the centre, although that would be mm. pretty amazing for some services. But uh, it, it's about acknowledging that these are the diverse community. That the whole point of the national quality, not the whole point, but one of the huge foundational premises of the national quality framework is that early education services should reflect the community they're in, and be informed by the community and be involved with the community. So not you know not celebrating mm. or acknowledging these things is really, I think you're just missing out on on a huge lot. Well, I mean, that's the other part of the, you know, I talk about rather than inclusion, I talk about extroversion because I want to, you know, if we're talking about equal equality, then we're not including into where we're extroverting and saying that there's a place of belonging and people create that place on their own terms. And I think that's part of what you're saying it is it's also the children who are transgender and who are gay the the amount of stories of gay people who say i knew i was gay when i was three or four (laughs) and i think what if i taught you in my classroom and what if i what if i didn't see what if i didn't talk with you in an inclusive way you know i ask those of myself and that's a thing to be to be a socially just educator is to be able to ask yourself those questions how have i engaged with you when you're now telling me that you know 17 years later you knew you were gay when you were four and you were in my classroom so that's a really important moment for us to just pause it's not about beating yourself up but it's an opportunity to say hey what did I say what was my language how did I reword what I said what resources did I have and what did that feel like for you to go through that part of your childhood and that part of your education with with or without that way that reflection of who you are or who your family is etc the other part is you know and we we say this particularly you know louise Derman sparks said this a long long time ago it's that to grow up white middle class heterosexual english speaking monolingual all those things to grow up that way and think that you are superior is just as dangerous to grow up in, with any other form of diversity that isn't that, because that's what we're measured against, to think that you're lesser. And I think to myself, when I'm in my classroom, I don't want any of those children to feel lesser than another. And if there's a, if there's a, a question of gender, if there's a question of sexuality, what am I doing to make sure that there is somebody not growing up thinking that they're lesser? So, yes, it's all the resources, it's the physical environment, it's all those things, but it's also about the language I use to talk with children. Absolutely. And I I, I think that's all, all those points are exactly right, that we're saying that we can – that this is about, you know, at its most fundamental level, um, you know, in terms of representation, in terms of ensuring that we, you know... That, and I'm, I'm, I'm tripping up on my words because, again, straight white bloke, I don't, I don't really have to think about this stuff unless I really force myself to. But that, Liam, I've got a lovely course you can do that will help you. <laughs> well, what a great segue because we were sort of talking about the idea that <laughs> I think one of the big challenges with this is, um, is 
there's sort of two levels for me. One is about, you know, a service and a, and a team of educators coming together and agreeing that this is something they want to tackle and do and, and you know, and, and muddle our way through. And as you said, I think we've gone on that journey as a sector. Or still, we're still on that journey with Indigenous perspectives, but I think that those discussions are now taking place in services where they were never taking place before. We, we, I think we're at that very really starting point with these kind of topics, but I know this is something you uh, think about a lot and do a lot of your work around. I know it's particularly a new um, PD opportunity you've developed to, so it's actually a really, I've, I've sort of never seen a, a way of delivering PD like this. I'm really excited. But do you want to tell us about your new sort of, um, your, your online PD tackling this, this very topic? Well, yes, I, it, it was in conversation with a couple of people and looking across all of the professional development that was available. And while there are some amazing leaders in our profession and amazing professional development, there was nothing explicitly looking at gender and sexuality and this very conversation about how do you make it cultural? How do you make it every day? How do you make it more than a book and a poster? How do you engage with this idea of, you know, social justice as not being a hot topic? How do you engage with it as an everyday practice? So I was lucky enough to call around to an amazing group, 15, uh, actually there's more than 15 people, there's 15 parts to it, who are families. We've got Professor Kerry Robinson, the magnificent Anthony Saman, my beautiful lawyer, Nick Stewart, talking about the regulatory landscape. We've got educators who are gay. We've got educators who are heterosexual. We've got a whole range of people talking about this very issue from all the different perspectives, partly to demystify the, you know, the inverted commas contention that goes with this issue and partly to, I guess, say to people, it's actually really okay to talk about this and let's create a space to have a big discussion about all these things that become the hot topics, particularly, you know, we're in social media, on Facebook, they're all happening. Let's create a space to work through this and get some advice from experts. And so facilitating little, you know, bits and pieces from the experts and then having a conversation about them, doing a little bit of reading. For example, pages 248 to 250 of the National Quality Framework are really important, of the, the guide to the National Quality Framework are really important because they give us some insights into the difference between, you know, general inclusion of families and what it might feel like to be an LGBTI family. Why do we have to mention them in the, in the NQF? We, we do because we need to because it's obviously, you know, that's a flashing light for this needs attention. At the same time, imagine if, you know, we didn't need a legislative reassurance that this was something that we needed to focus on. So I guess that's a reminder for us that this is work that we need to do. So what I tried to do was to develop something that people could do at their own pace, something that was lively and had lots of interaction and had lots of expertise and support, I suppose, for people to feel really safe and to feel, you know, excited about exploring these issues together in a community. So how do you find out more about it? I can send you a link to the the event. It's, can I tell you, it's so beautifully written, the description of the event, beautifully written, crystal clear, and it tells you an overview of what's happening, why you're doing it, and the people who are involved. So I'll send you... points. Can I tell you? It's in paragraphs. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Liam, could we possibly put that up on the page? Absolutely. We'll have that in the show notes for this episode. I think we should point out, I mean, a couple of things there, I think, uh, which you sort of articulated there, Red, but this is what the fantastic thing about this, I think this is not sort of a one-off hit PD. This is no. you know, something that's going to go, I think, for the rest of the year. Is that right? Ren, the, the... It's yeah. It, so it, it's starting around April. The first content will go up in April, but people can actually join any time of the year that they like. I've kind of designed it that you don't have to start on that particular date. Unfortunately, the way Facebook events kind of lock you into dates, it gives you a beginning date and an end date. But what's going to happen is the content is going to go up re- regularly, and then there's going to be opportunities for I'm going to do a Facebook Live within a secret group so that people can discuss and talk about things and share their ideas. So, But people can join any time because they can easily catch up. And I wanted to make it as accessible as possible. I wanted to make it as easy as possible. I wanted to make it flexible so people could do it in whatever time. Like it's a lunch break. It's a 20-minute interview. You do it in 
I shouldn't say lunch break. That's not very good big steps campaign, is it? You could do it in your curriculum planning time. You know, there's all of those opportunities and ways in which you can do this. So, yeah, it, 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 it's going to start. Um, it'll launch in the 1st of April, but anybody can join any time. And then after that, I'm going to look at other ways to keep sharing this so that we can get more people on board. But, yes, Liam, I think, sorry, back to your point, a one-off talk about doing this stuff is really great and really important. Building a community where people can chat about things together and share and struggle and ask questions that, you know, even if they feel like it's silly, there's no silly question. That's kind of what I wanted to create. And the generosity of all of the experts that are participating, I think, will really excite people and I think it'll make them feel much more comfortable about having a go at doing this work in their everyday pedagogy. Absolutely. I want to give a particular shout out to um, a listener of the, of, the, of the podcast, Sarah Louise uh, Gandolfo, who's been a huge supporter of the podcast. I think basically since we launched, uh, she pretty much likes or retweets everything we put up. And I know she's involved um, in this with her amazing family. So uh, there are some pretty, pretty special, amazing people being involved in this PD, but we will have all of the details of that up on our website. I think we it's, it comes with, I don't know, we, we need to do something like Oprah's Book Club. Can we have the early education show <laughs> recommendation or something? I don't know. I'll, I'll have a think We also that. need to put up links to the social justice in early education conference as well. Yeah, and the, the Facebook group. And There'll also, can links. I point out that, that Red and I have written a book about this stuff? <sighs> what a fabulous book. And guess what? What? It's in dot points <laughs> <laughs> yeah tell us a bit about that lisa because that, that book is fantastic there are multiple copies around the centers i work at look i should just explain that red is red's a doctor she works <laughs> she writes things you know that are multi-pages and heaps and heaps and of words and all these highfalutin concepts and i'm just a lowly journalist so i try and write things in really simple language so red wrote this or edited this wonderful book the anti-bias approach in early childhood and i said red i need a dot point version of it and so we sat down together and wrote one and it's called fair's fair how to tackle bias in education and care services and it's very simple and it doesn't involve too much brain power to actually access the topics. Is that a good description of it, Red? Uh, except to say it's not simple. It's beautifully, simply complex. What you've managed to teach me is about how you get those big ideas that are complex into ways that communicate with lots of people in our sector because our sector is really diverse and we need to say everybody in the sector can participate in this. Everybody can have access to this. And I think, thank goodness you're a journalist because that's, that's you know, it's a really great example of interdisciplinary um, collaboration to create something that's going to be inclusive for people. Yeah, well, thank God you're a doctor because otherwise we wouldn't have anything to write about. But we also know friends that are really good designers, so it's really pretty as well. It's got got really pretty pictures and there's a lot of pink and rainbows. (laughs) (laughs) Priorities. (laughs) All right, well, we will include links to all of those, but they can also be found at your website, Mm -hmm. multiverse.com.au. And we, again, thoroughly would recommend all of those resources as well. Dr. Red Ruby Scarlett, thank you so much. Much for final. I think I, I really feel like this is part one of a much longer conversation. We will definitely be having you on again, tackling through some of these issues. But um, we really appreciate your time and speaking with us today. Thank you. Would happily return any time. And I just want to say that all of this beautiful conversation, and I know that I know that country would definitely be cuddling us right now. That I'm on beautiful Gadigal country that is all about everybody belonging. So thanks for having me, and I really appreciate all the beautiful activist work you do. Thank you. Thanks, Red. Right, welcome back. Thank you again to Dr. Red Ruby Scarlett for joining us for the show. Um, like I sort of said at the end, I, this is a topic that could just you know go on and on and on. I think we'll definitely have um, Red back to, to be talking about maybe a slightly different angle on on social justice. But um, you know, absolutely check out all the, the resources we mentioned there, um, and definitely look at the social justice and early childhood Facebook page. That's uh, that that page. 
uh, has really been helpful throughout my professional career, just providing different perspectives on a whole range of issues. I don't necessarily agree with all of the, the opinions and the, and the perspectives on there, but is that all of them do make me really rethink and, and reposition the work I do in the sector. So definitely worth checking out. For sure. But that's it for another episode. So we'll all three of us, I think, be back next week, although whenever in time we, we will. Should, we we will. will. And we've got another big episode planned for you next week. So until then, it's goodbye from me. And from me. You have been listening to The Early Education Show, hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs, and Leah McNicholas, and produced by Leah McNicholas. Find us online at earlyeducationshow.com. And while you're there, it would be great if you could hit the Support the Show tab, where you can become a patron of the show and support us for as little as $1 a month. We really appreciate it. Get in touch with us at earlyedushow at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter with the username earlyedushow. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. This really helps other people find the show. See you next time.